want to jump this morning into our sermon, beginning with a very interesting phrase taken from that reading of Acts 17. The phrase is taken from verse 6. These men have upset the world. I think there's another interesting translation that reads this way. These men have turned the rest of the world upside down. I think that's really the, the in, intent of what was said. How is it that a couple of Christians, a couple of followers of Jesus, traveling to the cities along this Roman interstate highway, which ran east-west through what is modern-day Greece, how is it that these two or a few more Christians, going on the Ignatian Way is what that was called, made such a powerful impact that they could be said they're turning the world upside down. Why would the citizens of this large city, and by the way, Thessalonica was a large city. They estimate there's about 20,000 people living there. How could they make such an allegation? I mean, this is thousands and thousands, this is thousands and hundreds of years before all the innovations that now have taken place regarding um, all the mass communication means like the printing press, for example, the telegraph, the telephone, radio, television, internet, social media, all those things have never even been thought of. But how is it that a small group of people could be thought to have such a widespread, transformative influence on the pagan society around them? I have to ask myself, was it just because they were clever? that they had a message that was all about self-help and improving, making your life better now? Was it because they were a widespread community organizing, and that's what they really invested heavily in? Or was it grassroots political mobilization that they would turn the world upside down? Well, I think the answer is found very clearly in the text here before us in verse 2 and verse 11. And you'll notice... They indicate here in those verses that there's one factor that was transforming the lives and that stirred up intense protests in that time. It was the teaching, the proclaiming, and the explanation of the Scriptures. And this is my second quote. First quote, these men have turned the world upside down. The second quote I'd like to begin with this morning is from the pastor of the 1850s, Charles Spurgeon. And he explains why these early believers were so impactful. He said this, The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. In this passage, I believe we find two ways in which the Scriptures are let loose. First is we find several insights into sharing the Word of God with unbelievers. I would describe it by, and qualify that a little bit. With unbelievers who tend to be religious or who tend to share a worldview similar to what Paul had as his frame of reference in growing up. And so that's verses 1 to 9. And then secondly, even though he is speaking to unbelievers in Berea, I think the principle there is also true. How do we receive the Word of God? as a follower of Jesus Christ in discipleship. So follow along with me now as we look at this text of Scripture. and We look at 
First of all, how do we share the scriptures with religious unbelievers? Because, by the way, if you keep reading through the chapter 17 of Acts, it's very clear that the approach that Paul takes when he gets to Mars Hill, uh, when he's there in Athens, is entirely different. It's not the same at all. But it is a, an approach based on the audience to whom he was speaking. But let's look here now, first of all. Notice, according to verse 2, that the Apostle Paul did not wait for unbelievers to come to him. He made it his intention, and his purpose, and his uh, desire was to go and seek them out. And so it says in verse 2, he went to them. It's a good reminder again of us in being on task, being on mission every day, that we think of ourselves as being having opportunities to minister to unbelievers around them. And notice his strategy for sharing the gospel. To pursue these religious Jewish people, and where were they? Well, he's, he knew he could find them there weekly in the synagogue services. And so he doesn't show up at the synagogue service waiting to somehow engage in a debate about the Sabbath rules. You know, what do you follow? What do you not follow? Where's your freedom? No, he didn't debate that. He doesn't sort of challenge the local rabbi to some you know, uh, uh, ongoing debate. He reasoned with them, verse 2 and verse 3, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining, giving evidence that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. Now, I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but I think it's appropriate to do so. That's why I don't like electronic Bibles. Uh, the one I have my, on my iPad, uh, you can only highlight, in the particular version I have, the whole verse. Well, I like to highlight key words or to underline them. And so in this text, I have highlighted four verbs that describe the way that Paul sought to make clear the Old Testament message. The first is, notice, he reasoned. He reasoned. The term used here is from the Greek term, from which we get the English word dialogue. Paul was really among people who shared his common heritage, his common worldview, uh, some of the background that he similarly shared with them. He had been through many, many of a synagogue service or a Jewish worship service. And so he dialogued with them. There, there's a back and forth that he exchanged with them. It wasn't just a one-way, it's, it's me talking the whole time. No, there's a dialogue going. There's Q&A here, questions and answers. And Paul, I believe, perhaps is began to ask them questions. They perhaps are beginning to ask him questions. And he is seeking to impress upon them the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a good reminder. There comes a time in life where it's, it's helpful and very important to be prepared to have biblical answers to the questions that people have about Jesus and about the central message of the Bible. And so Paul is prepared to be able to have this kind of exchange and dialogue back and forth with people who are answering and raising questions. But secondly, notice he didn't just dialogue, he explained the Bible. He explained it. And the term here literally means to open up the Bible. What Paul was doing was unpacking the various texts of Scripture that he was discussing and quoting to them so that the crowd there in the synagogue would understand what those passages of Scripture meant. 
In other words, he's connecting the dots. He was trying to show them this is what this really means. The term used here, explain, is what Jesus did. This is the exact same process that Jesus undertook when he was on that road to Emmaus. He comes upon two disciples who are forlorn, they're discouraged, they're depressed because Jesus was put to death. And so here is Jesus in his resurrection body. They don't understand who he is. He shows up. Very interesting words of what Luke describes. By the way, Luke is writing the gospel. He's writing this book of Acts. Notice he uses the same term, verse 24 of Luke 24. He says this, Jesus explained to them, these two disciples, the things concerning himself in all the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus connected the dots. He tried to explain to them how all the scripture passages were pointing to him. And then you read the response of these people who heard his, his uh, teaching, his explanations, and they say in verse 32, were not our hearts burning within us? Now, that's not heartburn. I think what he's saying is our, our hearts felt strangely warmed, perhaps. In other words, this was fascinating to them. They were, fully, they were, they were gripped by his comments and moved by what he had to say. When Jesus was speaking on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. Explaining scriptures is so significant in terms of how the reformers understood the importance of making sure the Bible was clear. They, got in, they, they, they brought the church back to explaining what is in the text and drawing that out. Prior to that, the church had been what? All worship was done in a language that many people didn't even speak. Many people didn't even understand it. Everything was vague. Everything was clouded. Everything was obscure to the average person who couldn't even read. And the Reformers understood the Bible needs to be in the language of the people and we need to be able to speak from the language of the people and open up the Scriptures so the Scriptures are able to be understood. The term for that is expository preaching. It's interesting that of 1830s, a very faithful pastor in England who had been expositing or had been explaining the Scriptures for over 50 years in the same church, Charles Simeon, died. And he said, what I sought to do was take the Scriptures and make them clear to the people. For 50 years, that's quite a task and quite well done. I wonder, have you learned to explain the Bible to other people? In your own words, being able to say, well, uh, you know, let's look at this text of Scripture. How about this one verse, John 3, 16? Can you explain that to somebody? Can you unpack it? Can you explain what, is, what, what was actually recorded in that verse and then bring it down to somebody's level where they say, oh, okay, I understand now what you're saying. Can you unpack, for example, a parable of Jesus and explain it in a way that somebody else could understand what's the point of this parable according to the Scriptures? Or maybe it's a paragraph in the New Testament epistles. Being able to explain the Scriptures is one effective way to let the Scriptures be effective and be understood in the lives of people around us. Thirdly, Paul also provided evidence. Provided evidence. Interestingly here, he sets forth the biblical proofs as to Jesus' messianic identity. He's not only just discussing, he's not only explaining, but now he's going to say, 
All right, now here's this text of Scripture that was prophecy. And so he's quoting that. I would say, for example, he's laying out Old Testament predictions of Jesus' suffering. The Messiah had to suffer. The Messiah had to die. Die as a substitute. He's probably uh, using text of Scripture from Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, something like that. And then he probably gets into the issue of the Old Testament Scriptures pointing ahead to the fact that Messiah also had to be raised to life. Psalm 16. And then Jesus, and then, and then Paul would show how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled those prophecies. Again, he was trying to show, here's the prophecy, here's the fulfillment. I wonder if you've gotten to the point in your understanding of the Scriptures that you can prove that Jesus is God from the Scriptures. Can you set forth the biblical evidence for that and show someone in the Scriptures? Well, this is what it says about Jesus. This is what Jesus claimed about himself. Can you show people and give biblical proof of salvation that it is by grace alone, through faith alone? It's not by good works. Are you uh, able to prove that the accounts of Jesus' resurrection are not just legends that were made up and embellished and somehow have come down to us, and so we therefore think the resurrection is a spiritual exercise, wasn't really a bodily exercise, or are you able to look at it and draw out from the accounts of Scripture that there were eyewitness testimony here? It's important to be able to use those kinds of skills in handling the Word of God. So therefore, it's what? We're all growing, we're all learning, we all still need to grow in our ability to handle the Scriptures. But I would just like to also compliment what I've just said, which is so important, with another way of balancing out what is going on here in this account in Thessalonica. And we do this by, uh, first of all, looking at Paul and Silas. They're, they're not preaching themselves. They're not talking about themselves. They're proclaiming Jesus using the Scriptures. That's such an important point we want to emphasize. It's not me knowing more than you. It's what the Scriptures say and what the Scriptures are pointing to. They're pointing to Jesus. Learning the Scriptures is certainly not a simple thing. It's, a, it's not a, a three easy steps. You know, if you just do this, you do this, if you do this, boom, you've got it. No, I wish it were that easy. It's not. We all know that. I think many of us know that. But it requires effort. It requires concentration. It requires reviewing going over things again and again over a long period of time. And that's why Paul wrote to Timothy that important encouragement and, and charge and challenge to Timothy. He says to his, his um, mentoree, he says, 2 Timothy 2, 15, Be diligent. Study to show yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of God. Study. I was impressed. One of the one of the one of the areas I was a little surprised in recently. I took a one of those defensive driving courses. Uh, you have to endure those every so often. I still understand it. The good drivers have to show up to take these classes so that we can pay less for our insurance when we haven't had an accident. It doesn't make sense to me, but anyway, uh, nonetheless, that is my motive is to save money. But I was very impressed in going in there, and you have to sit through six hours of instruction. But the instructor acknowledged. 
she is a volunteer. She's not paid a dime to teach that class. I was impressed by that. I was also impressed with how much information she had to, uh, to, had to master. She had to learn. She had to know what the laws were. She had to know the different important insights about safe driving and those kind of things. I thought to myself, here's a person volunteering to help uh, empower other people to be good drivers. I thought, how much more am I willing to be motivated to arm myself, to study the scriptures well enough that I can be used of God and present truth to those around us, to point them to Christ. And there's so many resources, aren't there now? I mean, online, there's just an abundance of resources that were certainly not available when I was growing up, that you had to buy books and books and books. But online, there's so many things. There's study Bibles, commentaries. Certainly, we don't need to know everything, but we do need to learn basic skills on how to handle the Scriptures. We need to be able to provide biblical answers to questions that unbelievers pose to us. And by the way, for some of us, that seems a little intimidating. We say, well, I don't want to get involved in a conversation like that because I may not know the answer to the question. That's okay. Just say, be honest. I don't know that. But I'm going to find out and I'll get back to you. And that's a very helpful and appropriate way to handle those kinds of situations. And now I want to finish my thought about being balanced. I got ahead of myself. In light of what we've affirmed about the importance of being prepared and being armed and ready and having answers for pointing others to the Scriptures, notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, take it just a second, hold your finger there, and go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, page 1404. You see, Paul is writing about some details about his interaction with these folks from this very large city of Thessalonica. And he reminds them of a balanced approach he has in how he taught them and how he interacted with them about the Word of God. Listen to this evangelistic strategy he records in verses 8 through 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Having a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. And you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Like a pair of shoes. The idea of love and truth always go together. You can't separate one from the other. It's not just an intellectual discussion we're having. It's not just winning an argument. What we're doing in evangelism is there's a, it's driven with a sense of, of, of patient concern, of a love for those that we're seeking to, to help explain time and time again different passages of Scripture. And so Paul wrote to Timothy this same kind of outlook that he should have. He says, Listen, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, The Lord's bondservant, or pe people who are the servants of God, servants of Christ, must not be quarrelsome. We're not to just argue with people and become intensely annoyed with them and become uh, very um, uh, you know, caught up in this 
I'm going to win this argument, and I'm going to show you a thing or two, and I'm going to use the Scripture almost like a, a hammer to hit them over the head. No, that's not the idea at all. Be kind to all, Paul said, able to teach. Be patient when you're wrong, when people don't give you respect. And with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I think of another example, again, of Jesus and how he did this in his own ministry. Jesus, in the middle of the day, super hot. It's intensely uncomfortable, and he is so parched and ready for some cool, refreshing water, sits down at a well, and here comes a woman in the middle of the day, clearly a woman who was, had a terrible reputation in the community as being rather loose in a sexual way. There's a lot of shame this woman deals with. Nonetheless, she sits down and engages the conversation with Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He brings the topic towards spiritual matters, jumping from the water to talk about living water. And then what does he do? He keeps pressing that a little further, and immediately she does what? She changes the subject and says, let's talk about religious matters that people disagree with, the debate that's going on. You know, I'm a Samaritan, and up here in this area, we worship in this particular place, Mount Gerizim. And you folks are Jews, and you worship down in Jerusalem. Well, which way do you think it ought to be? I don't think I agree with that. She wants to debate and discuss and argue about things. And what does Jesus do? He just moves through that. I'm not going to go there. He says, I'm just going to tell you, all these issues of debating doesn't amount to anything. Eventually, it all boils down to someday. It's not going to be where you are worshiping. It's the who you're worshiping. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. So that was Jesus' approach. That was Paul's approach. It's a good approach for you and me as we seek to help win people who are religious to Christ. Secondly, we'll notice in this text that, again, I'm looking now further on in the ministry that went on in Berea. I'm going to just uh, add on to what's been said there and talk about how do we receive the Word of God as a follower of Jesus. I realize this doesn't necessarily fit in exactly with what was going on there, but I think the principles are very much vital and important to adhere to. The Bible insists that the only way to be capable of doing what we're required to do as a follower of Jesus. The only way to be adequate, to be fully equipped, is to know and learn the Scriptures. That's essential for usefulness in the Christian life as a follower of Jesus. The Bible is not just merely inspirational writings. Writings that when you read them go, oh, wow, that is that's so uplifting. That's so impressive. No, it's not that. Because the Scriptures describe themselves, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the Scriptures are God exhaled. That is, God is the one who breathed them. It is really the Word of God. These are, it's not just inspirational writings. It is writings that are inspired by God. And therefore, they are useful for doctrine for reproving people when they need to be uh, reproved and correct, and then correction, telling them the right way to live, and then training people in godly behavior. Jesus knew that the one God-given tool essential for a believer's sanctification was what? John 17, 17. 
Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so that's critical for our growth and development as believers of Christ. And so what is the one essential element that will nourish and produce spiritual growth and maturity in a follower of Jesus? It is the word of God. And that's what, that's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it, by the word of God, you may grow. You're not going to grow if you're not eating and digesting and understanding and applying the scriptures. So look at the people of Berea. They were singled out for their eager, eager reception of the word of God. They couldn't wait to hear it. They were so interested in the Bible and understanding the scriptures. And I find that one of the ways in which you can tell if someone is a believer, particularly if they've just recently come to faith, is the voracious appetite and interest in the Word of God that that person has. It's amazing. The level of interest a new believer has in, in reading his Bible and studying it and, and just digging into it. It's all new. It's all uh, uh, interesting to them. They, they read it. They try to understand it. They're asking questions. They're taking notes. They're discussing it with other people. And they're really beginning to take it to heart. It's a sign of life in a believer. But sadly, if we're not careful, over time, our appetite for the Word of God can diminish. And it was D.L. Moody who offered, I think I've got the quote in your, Bible, in your notes there, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. And so it seems to me one important principle for any believer to know and to be growing is to be in the habit of renouncing and confessing sin. Because if sin is really where your heart is pursuing and you're not really turning away from it, you're not confessing it, you're not acknowledging it, you're not admitting that you need to have your heart cleansed, after a while that sin is going to, what, lessen your interest in the Word. And Peter said you need to get rid of sins. That's one of the important ways to maintain a healthy desire to read and study the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says, put aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and then you will desire the Word of God that you might grow by it. Another practical way which we can be ready to hear and receive the Word of God proclaimed on the, on the Lord's Day through the preaching of the Word is to get a very adequate and uh, sufficient amount of sleep the night before. It's a real problem for some of the folks in the younger generation. They're sitting there playing with their electronics in the wee hours of the night. They don't sleep much. And so shutting off our electronics, uh, heading to bed earlier than we perhaps uh, tend to do on a Saturday night is a very good way to make you at least a little bit more refreshed and ready for the idea of hearing and growing and learning the Scriptures being taught and proclaimed. Sleep-deprived worshipers tend to short-circuit and do not fully benefit from the preaching of the Word of God. I've been there. I can remember what it's like to be sleepy during a sermon. I, I know what that's like, and uh, I know it's a problem. Some of us don't want to sleep because we've tried to get a good night's sleep and haven't been able to do so, even though that was our intent. Some of us have medical things and medicines that we take. I realize that. But it's something worth taking to heart. Another practical idea to help you remember 
what you're reading, what you're hearing from the Word of God, to retain it, is to take notes. I don't leave notes in the bulletin and give, suggest people take notes because they, I'm such a great preacher. That's not it at all. I do it because it helps me as a listener to retain what I've, I've heard. I'm hearing it and I'm seeing it. And so when that happens, it tends to be something that I feel like has helped me in that process. I hope it helps you. Charles Spurgeon, that great pastor, said, A well-marked Bible is a sign of a well-fed soul. So marking up your Bible is not a bad thing when you're listening to it, when it's being taught, when you're reading it. And let's remember, reading your Bible is just not an end in itself. It's not just merely gaining facts that we tuck away in our minds, but the Scriptures are intended to introduce us to Jesus Christ. It is to point us to the God who is revealing Himself in this Word here. And that's what John Chapter 5, Jesus' comment was, the Scriptures testify of me. Don't miss that when you're reading the Word. Look for Christ on every page. Well, not only did they receive the Word, word eagerly, notice they examined the Scriptures to confirm that what they were being taught, what they were hearing uh, perhaps online or reading online or uh, what they're uh, perhaps uh, reading somewhere else, that, make sure it's true. Make sure it's biblical. Every follower of Jesus needs to be aware of deception. Many people claim to speak on behalf of God. Oh, there's so many people out there who are trying to say, well, this is what God is saying to us. Only way to determine if what someone says about God or what God says is true is to verify that it is found in the Word of God. Recently, I was, came across an article describing a phenomenon I hadn't really thought much about, but I became much more concerned about it having read the article, was that there are these counterfeit parts circulating around in aviation. Now follow me here. According to certain guidelines with the FAA, there are parts of a plane that have to go through a lot of certification and verification that these parts are properly made using the proper materials and that they are approved to be used in aircraft. Did you know that from a period of time back through the 70s through the 90s that the FAA has identified 174 aircraft crashes and various accidents due to unauthorized aircraft parts made by counterfeiters? And these could be everything from electronics, uh, various integrated circuits. It could be bolts and nuts and rivets. It could be things like uh, titanium and composite metals that they're using. These are the kinds of problems that are out there, and it's affecting even our defense industry and in knowing that they really have legitimate, appropriate, approved, authorized parts. Now, how are you going to know if you have a Something that's fake and phony versus something that's real. Well, there's all these regulations they have in the FAA that they follow the, the identifying the parts by tracing it back to who made it and where it was uh, originally produced. But in the scriptures, the same thing is true of us. John Stott, in his commentary <clears throat> on this passage about Paul and his ministry among the Bereans, talked about he's not only emphasizing the importance of correct doctrine, 
But notice that Paul is also, he does not believe in indoctrination. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm glad that you're checking out what I'm saying is true. These Bereans are exemplifying a healthy habit. A healthy habit of verifying that Paul's teaching actually conformed to biblical revelation. It's not just a passing guy coming through, talking about things that seem impressive, but they're really not biblically authorized and sanctioned. And Paul never demanded that his listeners accept his instructions uncritically or in the blind, you know, blindly. So I wonder, if it, is it your habit that you always check out and look up scriptures when they're being cited? When a speaker or a preacher or an author that you're reading makes claims and insists that God wants you to be happy and healthy, do you check that out in the scriptures and verify, is that really what God is saying? Do you check the context of verses to guard against those who may twist them and distort them and misuse the scriptures to say what the scriptures never were meant to say or mean? Some passages of scripture are very difficult to understand. I'll be the first to admit that. But some portions of God's word will take careful study along with consulting commentaries and others who are very gifted and have demonstrated a very good skills in Bible study. And the more you carefully examine the scriptures, the greater your level of discernment will be. You see, one of the dangers of the seeping worldliness and that kind of thinking coming into the church is because so many people do not verify the messages that they're being given that come from the world system, that these are messages that do not agree at all with biblical truth. They are at odds against one another. It was J.C. Ryle, the great uh, 19th century pastor in England, said, Ignorance of the Scriptures is the root of all error and makes a man helpless in the hand of the devil. So true. And lastly, I would just say, it's not enough just to eagerly receive the word and to therefore examine the word carefully, but notice that the Bereans responded to the word. The Bible is never meant to be merely just contemplated and thought about. It was meant to be obeyed, right? James 1.22, don't be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word, to put the word into practice. When we read the Bible... We're to remember the authority and to remember the supremacy of the author of Scripture. It is God who is speaking to us through the Word. And therefore, we're called to bend to the authority of what God has said in His Word. We're to to yield to it, to submit ourselves to the teachings of Scripture. Even if it's inconvenient, even if it's unpopular, difficult, or even complicated. And life can get complicated when we're seeking to follow Scriptures and do what it says. But we are to believe what it teaches regarding the nature of God, the character of God, the promises of God. To what end? To the end that we become more like God. That the Word of God is changing us, causing us to think a certain way, more of a transformed way of thinking, and therefore that's being translated into transformed living and becoming more like Jesus. I wonder if that's happening in your heart and life. Are you a person that just likes to discuss ideas, religious ideas? You like to discuss your opinion with other people? 
Or are you really a person that's gone beyond that into the scriptures and you begin to read it carefully yourself, to think about it, to begin to say, you know, that's a part of my life that needs to change. I've got to give this up. I've got to pursue this instead. All my prayers that the Word of God will always have great power among us and that we will be a people like the Bereans, pursuing it and eagerly receiving it, examining it and responding to it. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into this passage of your word, we realize that Paul labored in these ways at great cost to himself. It was certainly not an easy time of ministry. He went from one situation of people getting uptight and rioting and almost dying and as a result of the rejection of what he had to say to another city where he did it again. People stirred things up. Lord, help us, we pray, not to be holding back and hesitant to be available to interact with people about what the Scriptures say. Help us, Lord, to keep the Scriptures uh, focused on what our minds are filled with, what we're learning about, what we discuss with other people, what we can explain to other people, Lord. Deliver us from being people who give our opinions far too often and who insist on things that make sense to us. But, Lord, help us to be a people of the Word who explain the Word point people to Jesus Christ from the Word and are available to be used by you, to be people who are, whose lives are being conformed to the Word. Help us not just to be people who are carrying a Bible around one day a week, but not able to use it in an effective way. Help us, Lord, to take the sword of the Spirit of truth out of the scabbard and to use it in a way that would bring forth people who will be reached for Christ and have lives transformed and useful to you, equipped for every good work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to conclude our, our service today by singing a hymn that makes no sense unless you know the Bible. That we can say in the midst of chaos or disaster or difficulty, it is well with my soul. How do people respond to trials and difficulties and not just throw their hands up and say, how can anybody believe or love a God like this? Well, the way you get there is when the scriptures are becoming more clearly understood and applied to our hearts, and therefore we respond in faith. And so we're going to sing, It is well with my soul.